State parks are usually a place of serenity and absolute beauty, and it brings me no more joy than to see them well-kept and maintained. But it does seem that recently state parks are a hotbed for paranormal and weird happenings. Welcome back to The Swamp, my friends, and welcome if you're new. Today I'm going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true state park horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into these creepy and allegedly true state park horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. Unexplained Events in Joshua Tree by Hill Billy Swag I was camping at Joshua Tree in the Black Rock Campground on the night of July 23rd of 2018. I'm not from the United States and I had flown in to do a western United States road trip in a motorhome. Some of it alone and some of it with a friend. In Joshua Tree though, I was all by myself. Anyway, I got to the Joshua Tree campground in the late afternoon. There was a very intense heat wave at the time, so it was almost empty. There was probably only one or two other groups in the campground, and I didn't notice any rangers because it was off-season. Now this campground is close to civilization, perhaps maybe only a 10-minute drive, but it felt like the middle of nowhere to me, especially being so empty. Naively, I chose the most isolated lot at the back of the grounds because it was closest to all the beautiful desert plants and cute jackrabbits. But it backed right on to where the wilderness began. Before sunset, it felt so lovely and peaceful, and I wandered around taking pictures on a hill by my van. After dark, being a lone young woman and my first time camping alone in such an area, I found sleeping quite hard. I held my pocket knife and pepper spray in my hand and eventually drifted in and out of sleep. But I kept having these very realistic nightmares of someone knocking on my window and attacking my van. Eventually I gave up on sleep and stared out my camper van window, messaging my family back home and looking at the sky. Well, all of a sudden, about six bright gold lights appeared in the sky. They looked like fireworks right before they would explode but instead just hung suspended in a half-moon formation, incredibly high in the sky. Then, these lights went out and another appeared in the far distance to the right, that hung in the sky for a few seconds before two disappearing. Now, I'm not a firm believer in otherworldly occurrences, but I don't not believe in them either. I googled to see if there was any astrological event that might have explained it, but I couldn't find anything. Also, these lights weren't moving in any sort of direction like a meteor or a shooting star. They were just hanging there, suspended. I would love to know if anybody has ever had any sort of similar experience or if anybody has an explanation for them. Something is weird about Tyler State Park by Anonymous this is a story that happened to me not too long ago. This story will need a backstory for it to make sense. So I live in rural Pennsylvania and my name is Tom. I live near a park named Tyler State Park. 
It's a very gorgeous spot for riding horses and going on walks. I bring my dog here and often ride horses down the trails. It's a pleasant place, and I've never really had a weird experience. Everyone should experience the feeling of riding a horse. It's majestic. Anyway, I know a man named John. He's around 70-something years old. I forget the exact age. He owns a horse farm, White Pines Horse Farm to be exact. He fought in the Korean War and has a bad hip, so I help him occasionally with things such as dropping hay in his fields, filling water troughs, and stuff like that. For that, he lets me ride a horse named Irish Red for free. It's a beautiful chestnut horse. Pretty, energetic, but friendly overall. We have that exchange and it's been a thing for quite a few years now. Remember, I said that I lived near Tyler State Park. Well, John's farm is right on the edge of the park, so I have easy access from a route not traveled on quite often, which is where the story begins. It was February 26th, in very nice out, for the first time in quite some time. Winter had hit us hard this year, and we didn't get very many days like this. Like my mother said, Mother Nature is bipolar. When I woke up, I decided to walk to the park before taking Irish on a ride with my dog Lola on a walk. I left and drove to the farm, called John to let him know I was going to be taking a walk today, and he replied, It's beautiful out, have a great walk. I remember that vividly, and I don't know why. I parked my car outside the barn, went to the trail. It was probably only about six or seven meters away from the barn and started walking. I was by myself and the whole trail was empty, which was almost creepy now that I think about it. The woods really did seem to throw ominous sounds at me, like, like there was something just right beyond where I could see. I enjoyed the walk overall until what happened next. As I was walking down that part of the trail that was next to the river, I noticed a man on the other side of the river. He wore baggy gray sweatpants with a black baggy sweatshirt on. He looked about 40 or older, which was strange because I've only seen younger people around here. Not to say that that's too weird, but you know, just an observation. But what caught my attention the most was that he was holding a gun. Now I'm not sure about hunting laws, but I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to hunt with a Glock. And I'm also pretty sure you're not supposed to have a firearm in a public park. I was creeped out now, and then he noticed me. He looked up, surprised, and threw his gun in the dense woods behind him. I laughed to myself a bit and wondered what drugs this man could potentially be on. I called over to him, something along the lines of, What are you doing? He replied with nothing, and stared at me as if I had the gun. I called out that I saw the gun, and when I said that he turned so fast, grabbed the gun, and then... I realized though the gun he had picked up was not the pistol he had thrown. This was a marksman rifle but I haven't searched every detail of the police report quite yet, so I don't know the exact model, so forgive me. He screamed at me to not call the police. It isn't what it looks like, all that typical BS, but I didn't care and asked why he had a gun and why he was pointing it at me. He said he didn't have to answer anything, so I said, and I regret saying, I'll call the police if you don't tell me. This made him furious. Then he said that I would never get the chance and raise the gun. I've never been so scared in my life. I turned and ran, and then I heard three loud gunshots. I pulled my phone out and called John. As I click on my phone app and press his contact, I see him waiting across the river, already halfway. 
John picked up and I told him the story in about less than 20 seconds. I'm surprised he kept up with how fast I was talking. He told me he would call the police and to keep running. I ran and I also dialed 911. Again, I heard four more gunshots and about four noises whizzing by my left and right ears. I approached the corner and decided that my stamina would soon drain to empty and I would have no fight left. So I turned the corner and hid behind a tree. I looked around for a big branch, log, or stick, absolutely anything, but I saw nothing. I heard his footsteps get louder around the bend. I braced myself for a life or death situation. He passed by the tree. I pounced on him. He screamed and dropped the gun. I grabbed it and backed up, pointing it right at him. He raised his arms and I said, I mean no harm, or something like that. Maybe I said I don't want to hurt you. I was so amped up I don't remember the exact words. I said that he had to get down and wait until the police got there. He got mad at that and charged me. The next thing I knew, I hit him right in the head with the gun. He was out cold. I kicked him hard in the ankle to make sure he couldn't recover quickly. But he got up a lot quicker than I thought he would. He would have had some sort of disadvantage, I thought. But he got up pretty quickly. And I don't mean to sound like some sort of cliche hero type or something, but I was able to subdue him until the cops got there. He was sent to the mental hospital and some sort of rehabilitation for quite some time. I hope when people hear the story, they take caution and be careful. Carry pepper spray. Carry any sort of self-protection. Whether it's a gun, knife, anything is better than nothing. You may not like it, but this is how it is out there in the world now. Followed in the Kahuta Wilderness by Renegade23. When I was 18 years old, I spent a lot of time in the Kahuta Wilderness. My favorite spot was a set of waterfalls several miles from the nearest parking lot. Most visitors just parked in the RV area and swam in the creek right along the gravel road. In the two years I hiked those trails, I never saw anyone further than a half mile into the course. Anyway, one Saturday, I took my girlfriend to the waterfall since she had never seen one in person. We set off on the trail, and not 15 minutes into the walk, she grabbed my arm and got incredibly quiet. She said she felt like she was being watched and had the heebie-jeebies. I assured her everything was safe. The only thing I'd ever had to worry about in my part of the woods was the occasional bear or copperhead. We continued, but she couldn't shake the feeling of being watched. I just figured she wasn't used to the wilderness and was having trouble adjusting. After a couple of hours, we finally reached the trail's end and had a picnic at the bottom of the falls. After we finished eating, she tried to check her cell phone for messages and panicked when she realized she had absolutely no service. I explained to her that there was no cell reception around for miles, and we were probably finally as alone as we could be, and let's just enjoy the peace and solitude, which of course made her panic. We started returning almost immediately because she was scared, and I couldn't help but smile, thinking it was kind of a bit silly. On the way back, I explained to her how many times I'd been out here all alone and never had any problems, but she still just could not shake the feeling of being watched. We were about a mile from the falls on the only trail around when we heard someone call from behind. I nearly jumped out of my skin and turned to see a man walking toward us. 
He had a rifle over his shoulder and a heavy beard with his hat tipped low. She took a small step behind me. Uh, what can I do for you? I asked, trying to sound friendly. You guys left your cell phone back by the falls, he said. I saw a slight grin behind his beard as he looked at my girlfriend. Oh, thanks for the assist, I said, extending my hand. He shook his head and told me he didn't bring it, and that it was still sitting up there, and we could follow him back there and get it ourselves. We politely declined and made our way back down the trail as quickly as we could, with him following us on the trail several feet behind. He followed us all the way back to our car, and she showed me her cell phone when I opened her door. I haven't been back to that particular trail since. It was definitely one of the more creepier moments of my life. Hey everyone, tonight we're back with another tragic murder mystery from the woods. This one has it all, death, violence, and corruption. So you know, viewer discretion is advised. We'll be discussing a triple homicide from 1960 where the suspected killer was ultimately cleared of all charges after many years of declaring his innocence. There's police corruption, the mishandling of evidence, conspiracy theories, and a few puzzling inconsistencies. Where did all of this occur, you ask? Well, that would be the Starved Rock State Park. It's located along the Illinois River in LaSalle County and is considered one of the state's most beautiful locations. This vast stretch of land covers over 2,300 acres and it became an official state park in 1911. Its popular attractions feature waterfalls, 13 miles of trails, and 18 canyons with walls made of moss-covered St. Peter's sandstone formed by glacial meltwater. According to the park's website, humans have inhabited the area since way back to 8,000 BC, and its name is derived from a Native American legend of injustice and retribution. Chief Pontiac of the Ottawa tribe was slain by a rival tribe's warrior while attending a council meeting. Multiple battles followed and other tribes became involved. The Potawatomi were allies of the Ottawa, and during one particular battle, they found themselves seeking refuge atop the 120-foot sandstone butte we now call Starved Rock. We call it that because the Potawatomi were instantly surrounded. They remained trapped until each succumbed to a slow, painful death from starvation. But enough about that. Let's get into this story that's been 60 years in the making. First, a little bit about our victims. Francis Murphy... Mildred Lindquist and Lillian Uting, the three women, were close friends, all married to successful Chicago businessmen and heavily involved in their local Presbyterian church. They supported one another through life's hardships, such as when Lillian was nursing her husband back to health after a heart attack. Though entering their later years, they were all physically fit and healthy for their ages. It was in March of 1960 when they decided to take a three-day girls' trip to Starved Rock State Park, but sadly it was a trip they would never return from. They booked two hotel rooms upon arrival, dropped off their luggage, and went to the dining room for lunch. They were noticeably in good spirits and expressed to the staff how happy they were with the accommodations, all the while completely unaware of the devastating blow soon to come or the lasting effects it would have on their community. Deciding the snow was light enough to be easily traversed, the three ladies set out for a quick hike towards St. Louis Canyon with cameras in hand. They wound their way through ravines and 20-foot drops while traveling through the slippery, narrow canyon trail until it finally arrived at the end, which was marked by an 80-foot wall on three sides, 
This area is only one mile away from their accommodations, but it was days later before searchers finally reached their remains. The first sign of something gravely amiss was when Lillian Uting failed to call her husband as planned. George Uting tried to contact his wife at the lodge only to be told that she was unavailable, and utterly unaware of Lillian's actual situation, he simply went to sleep. The following morning was a Tuesday and he tried again, only to be told she was busy. Again, no alarm bells were rung and a message was left on Lillian's door, the exact wording of which is unknown. George called the other husbands to update them on the situation, but he didn't yet see the reason to call authorities. On Wednesday, he tried again, this time pushing for the employee to check the women's room, and sure enough, there was not a single sign of them. Their beds were unmade, and their luggage was still there. Clearly a distressing sign. By this point, the women had been missing for over 40 hours, and due to police continuously brushing aside concerns from the worried husbands, eight more hours would pass before the search would actually begin. Tragically, the search party would quickly discover the bodies of all three women lying side by side in St. Louis Canyon. Two had their wrist bound with twine and their bruised legs spread. The binoculars were broken, the camera was dented, and four inches of snow had obliterated any tracks that may have been left behind. The only other clue seemed to be a bloodied yard-long log left nearby. The weather had considerably worsened as additional snow and ice covered the already narrow trails, making gathering evidence all the more difficult. Six inches of snow coated the ground where the remains lay, and to reach them, authorities were forced to bring in heavy tanks of liquid petroleum gas to burn away the top layer of snow very slowly. Though there was a risk of damaging vital evidence, it was a risk they deemed worth taking. Sources vary on what was found there. But among the evidence found beneath the snow was a piece of tin foil and blood stains. Though, don't forget, this was 1960, so that means much less than it would today. The twine used on the two victims was the same as the one found in the lodge's kitchen, and Frances was the only one with additional binds around her ankles. There are differing accounts of how many were assaulted, but these two also had clothing left askew to indicate the worst. Lillian and Mildred had removed their underwear and pants, while all three women's clothing was damaged, and their coats were placed between their legs. While the evidence was collected at the scene, other investigators began checking up on the known sex offenders in the area, though it didn't take them very far. It would be months before an arrest was made. After pathologists had state crime lab officials carefully removed the bodies, the autopsies occurred at the Hulse Funeral Home in Ottawa. Each was covered in blood. Their skulls were smashed and their faces were considerably bruised. The bloody tree stump was the suspected murder weapon, as the fatal injuries were made through blunt force trauma to the head. Eight pieces of evidence were found, and we'll be discussing those a little bit more. For now, just know the many images on Mrs. Murphy's camera were processed, but there was no sign of their murderer. Just three lovely women enjoying a seemingly wonderful vacation. The motive behind the brutal attack was unclear. Robbery was thought to be a possibility, however it was disregarded when the women's valuables were discovered with the bodies. On the surface, Chester Wegger seems like a perfect criminal to connect with in this case. At the time of the murders, he was 21 years old with a wife and two kids. 
plus he had a bad boy image straight out of the 1950s. Though he worked as a dishwasher at the Starred Rock Lodge for a time, some sources have differing accounts as to whether he was still employed there at the time of the murders, or if he was currently working in the family business, painting with his father. What drew attention to him were the two prior incidents in which he was suspected of sexual assault. The first instance occurred when Wegger was 12, and the victim was an 8-year-old girl. The second incident happened the previous year in 1959. In this latter case, not only was he later identified by the victim and her boyfriend, the crime occurred remarkably close to the site of our current murders. When questioning the suspect's colleagues, police learned Wegger came to work with a fresh scratch mark on his face. The source of the scratches were unknown, but Wegger insisted they were from shaving. As for his whereabouts at the time of the murders, he claimed to be writing letters in his basement, an impossible alibi to confirm, but also a contradiction to his last story. It would also seem he failed the polygraph, but let's keep in mind that those aren't foolproof. While these do sound like legitimate causes for suspicion, we must remember the authorities were under considerable pressure to find the killer. This was a very high-profile case at the time. Not only were three prominent women brutally murdered, the town was terrified. When things like this happen in smaller communities, it affects everyone. Even the economy suffers. With all of these factors in place combined with the era, I mean, Miranda warnings weren't even a thing yet, there's room for consideration. Is Wegger a cold-blooded killer or the victim of a corrupt police force eager to solve a crime? Well, it should be known that he always maintained his innocence. He maintained it for weeks before enduring an interrogation that lasted for over 24 hours. Throughout his extended period of questioning, Wegger was supposedly threatened with electric chair, a gun, and of course, this in addition to his claims of being beaten during his initial arrest didn't help him at all. Still, after his life felt threatened, he signed a confession, claiming responsibility for the deaths of the three women in the robbery gone wrong. Then, almost immediately after, he formally recanted the confession. Unfortunately, we can't see the interrogation for ourselves to know the truth. It seems all we'll ever really have is hearsay, so we better hear it all. Some sources also mention this confession involved Wegger taking police to the crime scene and reenacting the murders. Did the officers also force him to write that he saw a red and white plane fly overhead after killing the women? Because flight records did indicate this to be a true statement. It's also true that Wegger's jacket had human blood splatter on it. Further, if you recall his original alibi, there were no witnesses to corroborate him being in his home in the basement. Perhaps that's why his story changed repeatedly. The only detail to remain constant was his innocence. Eventually, he produced a more substantial alibi. He claimed to be getting a haircut at the time of the murders, which others did attest to. While these discrepancies seem incredibly convenient, we should also remember this was several years after the actual events occurred and memories are fragile. Regardless of these loose ends, Wegger's claims of innocence fell on deaf ears, and he was still convicted not just for the deaths of Mildred Lindquist or Francis Murphy. On March 3, 1961, Chester Wegger was found guilty for the murder of Lillian Uting, and he was sentenced to life in prison a month later on April 3rd, thanks to one lone juror. Wegger was also spared the death penalty despite the popular opinion thinking that he should get it. This left many upset that he would eventually be eligible for parole. Meanwhile, he served his time at the Illinois State Penitentiary and Pickneyville Correctional Center, 
as one of their longest-serving inmates in history. Over the course of his sentence, he was ultimately denied parole more than 20 times before it was finally granted in November 2019. It wasn't denied due to poor behavior or anything like that, but because he refused to show remorse and maintained his innocence for the duration of his sentence. When the Illinois Prisoner Review Board granted Wager's parole with a 9-4 vote, his family cried tears of relief. Those who voted for his relief noted, Wager's age, fragile health, lengthy incarceration, and lack of disciplinary action during his sentence. After the decision was announced, one of the victim's granddaughters crossed the crowded Springfield board office with tears. She embraced Wager's younger sister, Mary Pruitt, stating she always believed in her brother's innocence. Contrastly, Diane Uting, the granddaughter of Lillian, also present that day, and she urged the board to keep Wager incarcerated but was not without sympathy for the man's family. Believe it or not, the two families spent much time together throughout the legal process and became somewhat of friends. At the hearing, Diane said, While we may not agree with the decision, we certainly respect it. Per the Attorney General's request, Wager was held for an additional 90 days after being granted parole. This was to provide time for an evaluation under the state's sexually violent persons law. This allows for civil commitment if a person is deemed too dangerous to be set free. But in Wager's instance, they did not believe that to be the case and he was released in February 2020. He was then sent to St. Leonard's House in Chicago, a facility where elderly former inmates can receive help becoming reaccustomed to life outside. Almost immediately upon his release, Wager was placed on a speakerphone with the press where he was quoted as saying, I'm happy. I'm happy just to get out, you know? Tell everybody that I said thank you. In a recent Rolling Stones article, a now 83-year-old Wager is quoted as saying, I'm innocent. I was innocent. I want to be vacated. He stayed with his sister and her husband in LaSalle, Illinois. Only one juror was still living at the time of his release, a 95-year-old who feared being named. She firmly believed Wager was guilty and may seek revenge on her. Though she has passed away since, sometime in 2016, the lone juror who refused to vote for the death penalty openly admitted to regretting her verdict of guilty. Now, if Wager's proclamations of innocence were all we had to go on, we wouldn't be putting much consideration into this theory. But there are actually some legitimate concerns to discuss. Do you remember those eight pieces of evidence I mentioned? Andy Hale, Wager's attorney, requested they be re-examined with modern technology. According to a 2022 Rolling Stones article, the defense team first tried this in 2004 but withdrew their motion upon learning evidence had been stored improperly and potentially was corrupted. In 2007, they petitioned the governor for clemency, but you won't be surprised to hear that it was denied. It was only recently they decided to try again. Though initially denied at first, the team's second attempt was approved and the results were tremendous. Despite prosecutors having previously described the evidence as a complete mess, Hale was surprised to find everything properly stored and neatly labeled. Unfortunately, only one item was actually able to be tested for reliable results, but it was still a massive break in the case. The hair found on one of the women's gloves was from a male, and it was not Wager. Hale hopes this will be enough to make his case directly to the state's attorney and receive permission to compare the new DNA analysis to the CODIS database. If a new match could be found, this case may have a different resolution shortly. 
By now, you may be wondering who else could or would be able to subdue and murder these three healthy women. And that's where this case gets even trickier. Now, we're going to dive into some alternative theories. It is admittedly a little difficult to believe that one man, while apparently on his lunch break, assaulted and murdered three women, dragged their bodies away, and cleaned himself up in well enough time to return to work with no more than a few scratches on his face. At the very least, one would expect him to have some sort of help. Pending our source, it was either 1982 or 1983 when an elderly woman made a deathbed confession to Chicago Police Sergeant Mark Gibson stating she and her friends were responsible for the three women's deaths. In 2006, he described the confession in an affidavit. The elderly woman had been at the park with her friends when things got out of hand. She could say people were murdered and the victims' bodies were dragged, but that's as far as she got. The interview came to a sudden halt when the suspect's daughters intervened, saying their mother had lost her mind. There was no mention of further investigation into her claims, and this theory quickly went cold. Three other men were suspects at some point. Two were reportedly overheard referring to the murders on the phone, and the third was allegedly seen throwing a pair of bloodied overalls. Lastly, and my favorite, even if there isn't any evidence to support the claim, there is a theory that these murders were tied to the Mafia. These women were the wives of wealthy Chicago businessmen, after all. Who knows what their husbands may have really been into. I know it's a little out there, but hey, it's the cases where you have to consider every possibility, you know? The media sensationalized this case and changed the town's culture. It went from being a kind place where everybody left their doors unlocked to the type of place where everyone ensured their windows were locked at all times, their sense of security was tarnished, and nobody felt safe. Headlines included shocking titles such as Triple Killer Tells All and Starved Rock Confession. The once peaceful park was suddenly referred to as the Canyon of Death, and people went to great lengths just to avoid the area. The lodge went from regularly booking rooms to barely being filled, and the community was split as to whether Wager was innocent or guilty. HBO even made a docuseries about the case called The Murders of Starved Rock, which ends on a note of mystery just before the DNA results were returned. With so much recent activity in the case, perhaps they're waiting for enough material to have a second season. And there we have it. The Starved Rock State Park Murders. So, what do you think? Is Chester Wager an innocent man who finally gained his freedom? Or a sadistic killer? Do you believe his confession was purely motivated by a corrupt police force? Is there any theory you believe in more than the others? Let me know in the comments. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true state park horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to elbow that like button in the face so it really knows you enjoyed the stories. Be sure to subscribe to the channel if you're new, turn on notifications as I upload new videos multiple times a week and all things natural and supernatural. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that help keep this show going on a daily basis. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium but still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, and pretty much everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you made it to the very end, I would love to know what story was your favorite tonight in the comments. 
be sure to comment the code word leaping frog to let me know that you made it to the end and to confuse anybody who didn't. The funniest comment with leaping frog will be pinned at the top per usual. Thank you guys so much. I'll see you guys soon with another creepy episode.